Hi, Matthew. G'day, folks. Uh, welcome to uh, Matthew chapter 6. Uh, if you missed uh, when Hannah was reading, uh, Matthew 6 is on page 960. Uh, we're working through this sermon from Jesus, this, these three chapters of Matthew 5, 6 and 7, uh, in an attempt to work out and to remind each other week by week what it means to live in the kingdom where Jesus is king. Uh, Jesus is speaking. He's speaking to his disciples and to the crowd. And tonight we turn our minds to prayer. Now, I just want to flag right now that I, I'm guessing that I have the ability in about 30 short seconds to make pretty much every Christian in the room feel guilty. How's your prayer life? Now, that's a cheesy Christian question, right? How's your prayer life? It's one of those things that intimidating Christians who seem to have it all together can ask you. And you assume that whoever's asking you that question is kind of in a better place than you. Uh, one of the things that uh, me and my family do is when we're in the car, we listen to CDs. Sometimes it's embarrassing stuff like Michael Jackson, uh, just because the kids like it. Sometimes we listen to kids... No, really. Um, sometimes we listen to Christian songs that get stuck in my kids' head uh, and also in mine head. And I've just got a, a line from one of them that as I've been reading the Lord's Prayer again and again... Uh, I just want to start by blowing something out of the water. Sometimes when you haven't prayed for a while or when you try to pray and it just seems like you're talking to the air, it feels as though you're far away from God. You might know what I'm, you might know what I'm talking about. This might be totally foreign to you. People talk as though, oh, my prayer life's a bit dry. I'm feeling far away from God. Here's the line out of this cheesy kid's song. It's a terrible song. It talks about having a wireless connection to God. But here's the line. I'm as close to God as I can be. I'm as close to God as I can be. That's the line, right? But feel the depth of this. As Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he says, Father, If you are a Christian, if you're following Jesus, if your faith is in him, you are part of a family. Jesus is your brother who shows you how to live, who saves you and leads you. And God is your father. Now, just reflect on that for a moment. He is your father. It's not like you drop in and out of relationship with your Father in heaven. If you are a Christian, the Spirit of God, He is in you. He is the one who's brought your dead heart to life, who's given you this new life you have in Jesus. You are as close to God as you can be. So I just want to blow out of the water this notion that uh, if you haven't been praying in a way that you're kind of happy with, for a while, you should feel guilty and far from God. It's just a lie. Having said that, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And the surprising thing for people in Jesus' time, those who would have heard it, is that he starts by calling God his Father. Outrageous. Outrageous that a mere mortal can call God Father. Uh, If you have a look at the passage, which is always a good way to read the Bible, uh, with your eyes open, you'll notice that Father happens all the way through this chapter. Verse 4, your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Verse 6, 
when you pray. Pray to your Father. Verse 8, your Father knows what you need. Verse 14, your Heavenly Father forgives. Verse 18, verse 26, verse 32, God is your Father. Uh, Two brief reflections on this. Firstly, God is not like your dad. God is not like your dad. Uh, For good or for ill, we all have fathers. That's how you got here. I can say confidently, you all have a father. You might not know him. You might have a terrible relationship with him, but you have a father. And just because of our nature, we are shaped by our past. The way you think about God as father might be poisoned by who your earthly father is. I just want to say, firstly, when we think about God as Father, don't let whatever your earthly Father has been like shape your view of your heavenly Father. My dad's lovely. John, John Fabian Club Fitzharding, that's right, Club. Uh, When he was married at uh, age 27, he had a comb over, wore a blue, powder blue suit with ruffles. Classy guy. I really like my dad. He still comes over and mows our lawn sometimes, which is kind of emasculating, but great. Um, dad was always at my sport games when I was growing up. Uh, we didn't earn, he didn't earn as much money as other dads in our suburb, but he was there. I really li- I love my dad. Uh, he's kind of got a short temper and not great at talking about things that matter to him, but I love him. And the temptation is to let my view of God be shaped by my view of my dad. It's just not the way it is. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray and says, our Father in heaven. The first thing, don't let it be shaped by your dad, but let it be shaped by how Jesus teaches us about what his Father is like. Only Jesus, only the Son, knows the Father and has made him known. Let Jesus shape your view of who the Father is. Knowing God as Father gives us two things at the same time. It gives us great confidence and great humility. Great confidence and great humility. Confidence because God is really God. When you pray to our Heavenly Father, you're not praying to St George who may or may not have conquered a dragon and sits somewhere mystically with maybe magical powers. No. You're not praying to a statue... You're not praying to a made-up God that's been hacked out of a dead tree. You're praying to the one who by his word spoke creation into being. So when we pray to our Father who's in heaven, we pray to a God who is powerful, who sovereignly can bring good out of evil, like he did at the cross. We have great confidence when we pray to our Father in heaven and we have great humility because he is our father in heaven. He is, on one level, the one in whose image we are made, but we're, we're not like him. When we confessed our sins at the front end of the service tonight, we haven't done the things we ought to do, the things that we would do if we were perfectly living out our calling to be in God's image, loving people, caring for people, honouring God with every facet of our lives, like the father does the son. When we call God our Father, we have great confidence, but great humility. I think it's the same spirit that Jesus talks about in the first of the Beatitudes. If you're a page flicker, back one page, blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, verse 3. This idea that you come before God recognising that he's God and you're not. He's your father in heaven. Confident but humble. So when Jesus prays, we're looking at Matthew 6. This then is how you should pray. What does Jesus actually teach us to pray? Uh, I think there's kind of two halves to the Lord's Prayer. The first one, the first half is really about selflessness about God and the second, the second half is about reliance for us on God. Selflessness and reliance. Notice the word that gets repeated in the first few lines of the Lord's Prayer. If you're looking at it, top of page 960, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Your, your, your. The Lord's Prayer as Jesus teaches us to pray, gets our focus away from us and puts it on our Father. The Lord's Prayer takes our focus and asks God to make his name well known and well regarded, to make his kingdom, of which we're a part, extended through all the world, to make God's will the will that is done, not ours. As you pray the Lord's Prayer, there's kind of two ways you can pray it. You can pray it as a bullet point list, you know, Microsoft Word style, dot, dot, dot. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Or you can kind of expand each of those lists and work out what does it mean to pray your kingdom come? What does it mean to pray your will be done? What does it mean to honour God's name, to hallow God's name? Uh, Both of those things are worthwhile, praying briefly, Jesus has warned just before this not to babble on like pagans, like people who don't know God, who think God will hear you just because you prayed for ages. That's a fallacy because God is your Father and knows what you need before you ask. But it is worth thinking about what it would look like for you to spend a couple of minutes before your head hits the pillow tonight asking God to make his name known. If you pray, Heavenly Father... Your name be hallowed. How's God going to answer that prayer through you? Now, on one hand, all of these, all of these requests are answered first and foremost in Jesus. I'll say that again because it's important. All of these requests are answered first and foremost in the life of Jesus. How does God hallow his name? How does God make his name great? Through Jesus, through his life and death and resurrection and return to heaven. How does God make his kingdom come? Through Jesus. How does God get his will achieved? Through Jesus. But as you and I pray this prayer, in part we're asking God to include us in this family. Our Father, hallowed be your name. When you pray this tonight, how will God answer the prayer tomorrow? What will it look like when you go to work or uni or at home tomorrow for God's name to be honoured? Now, this is the stuff that you get to talk about at supper tonight. I can say, here's an example, that you actually include God in your conversation when people ask you how your weekend was. If you're not used to doing that, it'll sound so weird the first time you do it and you think that people are going to crucify you. Probably won't do that. But it might sound a little bit odd the first time out of your lips. Let me say, 
Having God's name honoured is something that Christians should be seeking to do. Because God is great. He's done wonderful things through Jesus and we're beneficiaries of what he's done. And so it's appropriate that God's name be told as great. And if you're a Christian, you're part of the advertising campaign. Uh, This is not me saying every sentence you must speak must have Jesus in it. But what would it look like for you at work to slowly learn how to speak, to practice how to bring what God has done into just talking about your weekend, talking about the floods, talking about mercy, talking about how good it is when people help one another and that's what God is like? Hallowed be your name this week at work. Jesus prays, your kingdom come and your will be done. And I think sometimes when you're working out what it means to think like this, it's helpful to think of the opposite. My tendency is really to work for my name to be hallowed, uh, for me to achieve the things that I want in my little kingdom and for me to seek my will. Does that ring true with you? Just left to your own devices. I think you and me tend, because of just what we're like, to want to achieve the things that I want. To get your own little patch and not really worry about anything else. It's kind of how you have to be to live in this world, isn't it? It's too much to think about if you try and solve all the problems everywhere. The kingdom seems to grow so slowly and infuriatingly in a way that I can't control. I'm just going to look after my own patch. Jesus calls us to a bigger story, a bigger narrative, a bigger purpose and calls us as his people in his kingdom to ask God to do his work everywhere. What's the kingdom of God like? It's like a mustard seed that's so tiny and unimpressive but eventually massive with people from all over the world. When we're praying your kingdom come, we're praying like we pray tonight for Christians in Syria persecuted Christians in Pakistan, where it's illegal to be a Christian or to own a Bible. We're praying that not only will God grow his kingdom in the world, but that we will more and more ourselves fall under the kingship of Jesus. When we pray God's kingdom comes, I'm praying that God would rule my life and the life of the people around me more completely as is appropriate for a king. The kingdom is just one way of thinking about being a Christian And because we live in Australia, we don't really care about the king, do we? I mean, we don't even have a king at the moment. We've got a king in waiting, Prince Charles. Oh, jolly good show. Not much of a king. Not the sort of guy I want to emulate. But Jesus is a king. He's already had his coronation as he was crowned with thorns and hung on a cross. Jesus has risen to new life, defeating death and showing us what this kingdom is going to be like, an eternal kingdom that can't be held back by anything. We pray for this kingdom to come in our lives and the lives of those around us. And part of that kingdom is that God's will be done. Can you hear Jesus' words in the garden? Not my will but yours be done. As Jesus contemplates the cross, the day before, the night before he dies, Jesus is our model prayer as he says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. If you pray this prayer, your will be done, 
What are you actually asking God to change in your life? Where is it in your life where your will is taking precedence and priority over God's will? You know where it is. That little bit of your life where you're just holding back on doing what you know God calls you to do. In a relationship, at work, in the way that you're using your time, Are you seeking your will or God's will? It's not a binary answer. It's not one or the other. It's complex. But the picture of those who are in the kingdom is that we are seeking God's will in every moment, every decision, every day, all of life. The first half of the Lord's Prayer calls us to a bigger picture of what God is doing. His kingdom, his name, his will. And as we turn to the second half, these familiar words kind of cast our mind back to how God has dealt with his people already. As Jesus says to pray, give us today our daily bread, the Jews who were listening to Jesus at the time, what are they thinking? Daily bread, well they could be thinking of Jesus feeding the 5,000. That's a lot of bread, the bread that they needed that day. Or they could even cast their minds further back to the manor in the desert. Now, for me, I've got quite a big fridge. Don't know about you, maybe a share house where you've got different levels for whose food is what or labels in the fridge at work. I don't know how your pantry operates. My suspicion is you're probably not living on a day-to-day existence. Although there are some uni students among us and maybe you just like shopping every day. There's something kind of beautifully Mediterranean to that, isn't it? When we ask God to give us today our daily bread, it's not just a prayer about bread. It's hilarious reading the Gospel of John when Jesus feeds the 5,000 with lots of bread. He says, I'm the bread of life. And the disciples are going, what does he mean that he's the bread of life? Is Jesus made of bread? It's kind of funny. Jesus is not just talking about bread here. When we pray to our Father, give us today our daily bread, this is a call for reliance on Him. Reliance in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus' people rely on Him for everything. Is this a feature of your life as a Christian? Do you rely on God? Now, what would that look like? Well, for us who have plenty of bread, I think the first thing that flows out of it is thankfulness. Are you, are you thankful to God for what you have? Uh, it's easy to forget to stop and be thankful. I'm not saying you have to say grace at every meal. That's good, but also can lead to tokenism and a religiousness that actually stops the heart from being thankful. But how good is it that we get to church and people have baked for us or made chips for us? Chicken chips? Really? Chicken? Come on. (laughs) Part of this prayer where we're asking God to provide us with the things that we need is taken in the scope of seeking his kingdom. It's not just bread to delight in. I had some beautiful bread yesterday. The Bible study leaders training brunch, someone brought this kind of bread with figs baked through it and it was glorious and sticky. Like that's a luxury. 
for me, part of this praying to God to give us today our daily bread, I think is meant to convict me of my obsession with food. Uh, We live in foodie central. Now, you may not be in this category, but I'm kind of preaching to myself here. Uh, So, just let me ramble for a minute. Uh, You can tell a lot about a person by what's on their Facebook page. And I have noticed that I take photos of food and put it on Facebook. I'm going to try and do that less, just because I think it's a bit weird to be so obsessed with food. Christians live in this balance between being thankful for what we have. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes gives us the right balance between delighting in the little things. Food and wine in their time are beautiful. But if food and wine is all there is, your life is pointless. You get the balance? God has given us good things, but that's not what life is all about. Life is about the kingdom and seeking it first and using everything that God provides, including our bread, to seek the kingdom. So who will you be having for dinner this week? How will you be showing thankfulness to God for the things that he's given you? Not just bread, but houses and stuff and cars. Everything you have, everything God provides is bread. The things you need for today. End round. This section on reliance on God turns to the matter of forgiveness. Forgiveness of debt, forgiveness of sin. God's people are reliant on him for everything, for the things that we need day to day and for the thing that we need most of all, for restored relationship with God. So when Jesus teaches his people to pray, he says, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. There's a bit of a kicker in here, isn't it? Verse 14 goes on to say, just in case you missed it, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Sounds like a condition to Christianity, doesn't it? You will get forgiven if, and if you don't, you will not. How does this fit within a picture of what it means to follow Jesus, to be a member of the kingdom of heaven? It makes me think of the story that Jesus tells about the guy who's been forgiven lots. You know the one I'm talking about? A servant owes his master just millions of money. He's in debt up to the wazoo. And he comes before his master master, and the master says, pay up. The guy says, I can't. Even if I go to jail forever and work as a slave, I just can't pay it off. And the master says, you're forgiven. Then that guy, having been forgiven, goes out to the guy who owes him 20 bucks and gets him tossed in jail because he won't pay it back. Jesus says, "Ah." that's a loose translation. (laughs) Don't you get it? You've been forgiven "Ah, this much. Forgive. How can you come to God and say, Lord, thank you for forgiving my sin and hold that bitterness in your heart where you won't forgive another, where you refuse to let a relationship grow and go on because of your unwillingness to forgive? How can you do it? 
It's just not appropriate. Now, there's much more to say here, which you'll be relieved. I will not say everything tonight. But let's just spend a moment asking if you have been wronged. Is there a relationship that when you read this, you think, ah, I am actually angry at this person and it's preventing me relating to them in a way that Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers and they're sons of God. Have you been wronged? Have you been hurt? Have you been betrayed? Have you been left? The cost of forgiveness is high. The cost of forgiveness is personal. It involves absorbing in ourselves the anger, the right frustration that comes from broken relationship, promises not kept, faithlessness from all the things which we have exhibited towards God. See, my frustration at the sin of others in their not meeting my expectations is real. Our brokenness and our being sinned against is real. And yet, in its hurt and angst and anger and brokenness, it reminds us even more of what we have done to the God who made us, to the Father who loves us like his children, who gives us a good world to live in and we just kind of treat him like he doesn't exist or at best only exists at convenient times for us. The sin of others in the mercy of God reminds me of the great forgiveness I've received from a God who is consistently gracious with me even when I turn my back on him. I'm not downplaying the reality of the cost of forgiving one another but saying to you, persevere in being the peacemaker that God has called you to be. If there are people you need to restore relationships with, people that you need to forgive in your heart, even though they are hardened against you, God still calls you to attempt to make peace. And it's embarrassing and it's frustrating and it seems pointless some of the time, but it's what God has done for us. And so we can say with Jesus, forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Reliance on God for bread and forgiveness and deliverance from evil is the heart of the Christian life. We rely on God for all that we are. That's a pretty neat summary of the Christian life, isn't it? Bread, forgiveness of sin and deliverance from evil. That's my life from here until Jesus returns. Having enough food to eat, having my sin forgiven and being kept from the evil that used to characterise me before I turned to Jesus. God promises to keep us from hunger, to keep us from his wrath, to keep us from doing evil. Or if you think of it in the positive, he promises to, to feed us, to be sufficient for us, to bring peace to us and to keep us to the holiness that he calls us to. Uh, You might be a memory verse kind of person. Uh, When Jesus gets tempted, he responds to the devil with quotes from scripture. 
I think it's a pretty good precedent. Uh, Even if you're not great at remembering things, try this one on for size. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, which says, No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. When you are tempted, he'll provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. See, part of the work of the Spirit of God in you, his people, is to show you the way out of temptation. In answer to this prayer, deliver us from evil. When tomorrow, tonight, you're presented with the opportunity to do evil or to fail to do good, there's the Spirit in you and with you showing you the opportunity to be the person God in Christ has called you to be. Deliver us from evil. Is a real prayer for real people who struggle with sin. And that's you and that's me. And God answers this by his Spirit. As we go through the Sermon on the Mount, asking what it means to be these people that God calls us to be, we're reminded that we are defined no longer by ourselves, but by the one who's died for us. That the Jesus who speaks these words is the same Jesus who knows he's going to the cross for us. Our life is defined by him. In the song we're about to sing, we're going to sing that my life is hid with Christ. My life is hid with Jesus. I'm so united to him by the spirit that he's put in us that as he prays and lives, we pray and live. And so uh, in a few minutes, we're going to do both those things, to sing and to pray. Uh, But first, I want to give you the chance to reflect on what God has said to you tonight, to pause, to pray, to think. You might be a writing things down person and there's room for you to do that on the sheet. Uh, We're just going to have a couple of minutes now and after that, Em's going to lead us in praying the Lord's Prayer and then we're going to sing.